Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and C. Grosso. Tonight on Fast, don't believe the bounce. That is the message from one top technician. Why he says today's big tech turnaround is just a blip. Plus, deal drama. LVMH calling off its $16 billion Tiffany takeover. But one of our traders says the deal isn't officially dead. And later, Disney facing big backlash over its new Mulan movie. will break down what is at stake for the media giant. But we start off with a major new development on a TikTok takeover. The Wall Street Journal reporting the company is working with the U.S. to avoid a sale of its U.S. operations. Let's get straight to Julie. Borson with the latest. Julia. Well, Melissa, sources confirming to me that ByteDance is continuing to explore options with the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, about a restructuring of the company that would avoid a full sale of those U.S. operations. Now, my sources tell me that long before President Trump set a deadline for TikTok to agree to a sale of its U.S. operations or have the threat of being shut down, ByteDance was negotiating with CFIUS about various options. My understanding is that one option that is being discussed is a restructuring in which ByteDance would maintain its ownership stake, but wouldn't have access to U.S. user data or any control over U.S. operations. I'm told that one option could involve having a U.S. company taking a minority stake and be an operating partner, say, having one of the bidders and Microsoft or Oracle be TikTok's cloud operator and manage the U.S. TikTok data in a way that regulators could feel comfortable with. Now, everything I'm hearing is still very much fluid, and my sources tell me it is unclear what the president will approve. So, Melissa, certainly an area to watch, but it sounds like a lot of options still on the table. Yep. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson with the latest on the TikTok drama. Take a look at shares of Walmart. This is the one that I first went to when I heard this news. Uh, Walmart reportedly teaming up with Microsoft in a bid for TikTok, reportedly in the lead, but it went from session highs to session lows immediately on this news. So we were talking for a long time, guys, about a re-rating of Walmart because of this guy. What do you make of, of this fall, of these developments in the TikTok store? Well, to me, it's bigger than just Walmart, Microsoft, although obviously important. And I'll let Tim and Karen and obviously Steve speak to that. But I, I take this and I look at it sort of bigger picture stuff. And I think it continues to speak to the U.S.-China relations that continue to deteriorate. And I think, at least, you know, for the last couple of days today, notwithstanding, the market is starting to take seriously. And maybe it'll start to take more seriously as we move forward. You know, I don't think things are going to get better as the election gets closer. I think they're going to get worse. And I think it's going to escalate. And I do think the VIX at 30 makes sense for a number of reasons. So I understand why Microsoft had a you know, bit of a sell-off, as did Walmart. But to me, this is much bigger picture stuff. And I think it speaks to the precarious nature that this market seems to be on right now. Karen? Well, I'm thinking more granularly of Microsoft and Walmart. For, Mal- for Walmart, I thought, similar to you, well, okay, this is too bad for Walmart because I really did like the idea of it for them, I, I think it makes sense. But I think even before we had heard anything about this, their potential participation in the TikTok deal, I think Walmart has a lot of momentum. And I think, you know, they're, they're, um, 
Walmart Plus, I think, will gain traction. I like what they're doing. The stock isn't crazy expensive. And I think them being on offense, which they are, post-pandemic, where they got a lot of new customers and they're doing what they can to get them to stay. I like Walmart. I, I wish they were a part of this deal. I don't, I, I'm guessing that's lower likelihood, but I like it even without that. And the stock was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight points higher then when they announced it. Um, so a lot has come out already from no more TikTok. So TikTok or not, the re-rating is still on, Tim? So that was an interesting conversation we had. I, and I, I, like Karen, think you do not cross Walmart off uh, the re-rating list just for this. So this was this was a continuation of, of that. And we were talking about how um, some of that audience could be good for their advertising and, and help their Walmart Plus. But Walmart Plus uh, is about same day delivery, about competing. Uh, when you looked at their digital sales and the growth, not just because of COVID, but because they're taking uh, market share. And obviously, Amazon is way, way ahead. Uh, the, the stock went from a about 130 to 145 uh, or 131 to 141 roughly on the TikTok news. But I do think this was a reminder uh, of, of all that they have done, whether it's Flipkart in India, whether it's the original acquisition of Jet in 2016 that we thought was a little strange. Um, but the acquisition and the, 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 ac the acquiring of intellectual uh, property and technology is something Walmart will continue to do. And who's going to compete with Amazon, especially with their ability to have those fulfillment centers uh, effectively in the form of all those big warehouses around the country? I like Walmart here. Even with this news, I still want to own it. The idea that Walmart wanted to be part of a Microsoft bid for TikTok, Steve, really maybe underscores uh, that the retail giant is, is sort of rethinking how it approaches e-commerce. It's not just a transactional e-commerce. It's actually uh, thinking about building some sort of an ecosystem where you stay on walmart.com or, or a property related to Walmart and, and you are part of that community. Yeah, I get every reason why Walmart wanted to be uh, with TikTok and part of that JV with uh, Microsoft. But I would think that the re-rating is put on hold. You're not going to get any, any um, uh, multiple expansion, I don't think, uh, if this deal is off the table. That's number one. Number two, in the last couple of days where we've seen the market uh, have a little bit of weakness, it's been value versus growth. If that's going to continue, then Walmart's not going to get that growth vig anymore. And I think you should sell Walmart, sell Microsoft, and take a look once the smoke clears on this deal, if it does. Mm -hmm. You know, guys, circling back to, to China and China-U.S. relations, I think what's interesting is that this really started, that there were doubts about the deal when China uh, issued new restrictions on the export of technology. And specifically for this deal, that would mean that the algorithm couldn't just simply go to the new new buyer, that there would be some sort of arrangement where the algorithm might be given for a year and then taken back or licensed, et cetera. So, so Beijing didn't want to take this lying down, so to speak, guys. So does this sort of signal to you that, that China's, gonna, China's in this for the fight? Of course they are. I don't, I don't think, I've never thought they weren't. And I think Tim has spoken to that. And I know Dan has mentioned that as well. I mean, there's no question that they're in it for the fight, and they're going to continue to push back. I, you know, but it's interesting. I, I think for the broader market, it absolutely has implications. But I'd push back to Steve, although I understand exactly what he's saying. And, I say, and I'll say, I think what Walmart has proven is they're willing to go down a road that historically they weren't willing to go down. And that augurs well, whether it's dealing with TikTok and a joint venture with Microsoft or partnering with somebody else. I think Walmart has shown their hand to be sort of uh, forward-thinking 
in, in, in an era where that's being rewarded. So I happen to think regardless of whether or not the TikTok deal gets done, you're going to get that re-rating. But to answer your original question, the Chinese-U.S. rhetoric is going to get ramped up. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's going to go on up until Election Day, in my opinion. And at a certain point, I think the market cares. I think that's what you've seen, again, today notwithstanding, over the last week or so. Tim, you think it gets worse? Because this was sort of, this sounds sort of amicable. You know, Beijing's going to lay out its rules, and so the U.S. is willing to say, you know, we're going to figure something out now. Well, I mean, but are those rules that, that they're going to be comfortable with? And again, it, it's, it's to me going to imply that anything that they buy still could, uh, you know, have some ties back to China and therefore may not be a sale or an acquisition, actually, that, that would make a lot of sense. So, no, I, I think th- this is the, the next phase. And, and why would China stand by and let a Chinese company be bullied over here, uh, especially at a time when uh, th- this has all been about control of technology and data uh, and essentially the 21st century uh, internet technology trade. And I, I, I just, um, I, it, this whole thing has been kind of bizarre in terms of the White House brokering a deal, t- taking a, effectively a banking fee, the parade of, of suitors coming up, um, and all this with China remaining silent, uh, when in fact this is a Chinese company, even though the company itself was saying we have no relationship with the Chinese government, whether you believe that or not, you can't uh, expect China to sit back, especially with what has been going on with Huawei, uh, et cetera, for the last year. All right, let's get back to the uh, market rally today. The Dow jumping nearly 440 points. The Nasdaq gaining almost 3%, but the rally lost steam at the end of the day. The S&P 500 finishing higher, but unable to recover all of yesterday's losses. So given today's market action, show of hands, panel, do you believe today's bounce? Ooh, the crickets. The crick. Oh, Karen does. Karen does. Well, so Tim's of, halfway yeah. up. All right, so Karen, wh- why do you believe the bounce? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying the market's going to go up tomorrow. I don't really know. But I think that all of the conditions that were sort of pressed in there to have this market rally, meaning the Fed being there, um, a, a hope of a vaccine and um, I think that news today on AstraZeneca was a little bit better than we had feared. Um, And reopening and mortality going down. I think all of those things that have been helping the market uh, are still there. And so, yeah, when we went up parabolically like we did, it's not surprising we would come down hard for a while. But I think some of those names will not go back to where they are. I don't know that Tesla is going back to 500 anytime soon. But there's a lot of other names to like. So I, I, I am long. I'm always long. But I'm... We're comfortable being long after a sell-off like this. Tim, your, your hand was half up. Why only half? Yeah. Well, yeah, so, so tur- turn around Tuesday on, on Wednesday because of the holiday. Uh, makes sense. Everything <laughs> one would have said yesterday, they should be saying the same thing today, by the way. That's, that's just fast money. Uh, those are rules. I mean, nothing, nothing really has changed day over day. So I'll say the same thing I said yesterday. And as far as I'm concerned, it makes sense. We, we, what happened in the markets is a function of where we came from. So this is what Karen has highlighted. Um, and to me, it's a mini version of where we were back, back really uh, in COVID times in the, in the advent. So I think um, the Fed is still on your side. Uh, I do believe uh, the buy the dip mentality is still in place until proven otherwise. It doesn't mean, and I know uh, Rob Schleimer is going to have some, some thoughts on where charts need to go. I think there are a handful of charts that still need to test lower. Um, but the buy the dip mentality for the market is not over. Steve, why don't you buy the bounce? You have to keep this 
You have to keep this thing equal. In my mind, when you look at a relative strength index and you look at overbought, we were in overbought status for the market and all of those tech names. And an overbought status is above 70. We were at 85 to 88 on some of these names. Even some were a little bit higher than that. When we sold off yesterday, we got down to low to mid 40s. Oversold is below 30. So I need to have an equal move. If I'm going to be overbought, I need to be oversold to the same magnitude. We're not there yet. There's a lot more room left to fall. Guy. Yeah, I look at it broad, you know, broader in the sense that, you know, we can talk about how great this economy. There are not a lot of great things happening right now. I know we're excited about a vaccine. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not in that world. But it's not coming anytime soon. Anytime soon, not the rest of this year. And as we get into the fall, I mean, I think we're going to start to feel it in terms of the economy. I, I, I just I'm hard pressed to believe it's that simple to flip a switch and everything's going to go back to normal. The market clearly got higher than I thought it would go. But I don't think by any stretch this has been enough to uh, assuage my concerns. So that's why I don't believe it. I mean, seasonally, I hate to bring up seasonally, but seasonally, September and October uh, are not good months for the market, Karen. And we have an election and we've got the, the pandemic still on along with flu season. Um, does that give you any pause in, in that hand being raised up so high? Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I don't, I, I've never traded around, you know, buy, sell in May and go away and any of that. I, the election is, is important, but I still think the Fed and the hope of a reopened trade and a vaccine are more important. And so uh, I'm staying long. All right. Well, we'll what see. The- we'll start to see earnings pretty soon. That's true for third quarter. Maybe maybe we'll get some guidance going into to next year. Um, what are the charts saying about today's bounce back? Let's go off the charts to find out with Rob Slimer of Fundstrat Advisors. Rob, what are you looking at? Well, there's a lot going on, obviously. I think that the, the key point is what we've seen with the NASDAQ or the Qs is uh, almost a textbook pullback. Three sharp days down that came on Tuesday, as Tim was just highlighting. And then we get this rebound. RSI, again, as Tim had just pointed out, is in that 40 to 50 range. That's a pretty typical range to see a bull market bounce from. So I think we do get a bounce here, but the question is, you know, how much further does it go? Do we get a lot more upside or is just a oversold near-term trading bounce, which is what my view is. Our view coming into the beginning of the month, September's gonna be choppy. Obviously that's a bit of a, a seasonal trade, but I think we still do a zigzag through the month as we get through the uh, balance of September, we're probably going to see some sort of low develop as we move into Q4. Very typical sort of seasonal low. And a lot of the stocks, a lot of the tech stocks, like the Qs, are back to 50-day moving averages, so you get that bounce. So technical traders almost have to cover, have to play the trade on the long side. But when you step back and you look at the weekly charts, and I think this is really where you need to have some perspective, step away from those daily charts and see what the weekly looks like. And that RSI in the bottom panel on the right-hand side, to me, still looks like it needs to do more work. I'm not a tech hater. I'm not a Tesla or Apple hater. I just think these stocks need to pause and consolidate and chew up some time and catch up with their longer-term moving averages. So, you know, what, what does a, an investor do with that? Well, if you look at some of these tech names or some of the TMT names, like, you know, the video game stocks, a lot of the, the work-from-home names, a lot of those names started to peak out in August. You can see that the relative performance in the bottom panel of this electronic arts chart started to roll over and it's below the 50-day moving average. And there's quite a few tech stocks doing that. Uh, semi-cap equipment names, AM, uh, applied materials, KLAC are good examples. 
But there's a lot of other stocks, and I think Karen was referring to this. To me, the cyclicals, I think the market is broadening out from that secular growth, you know, work from home to return to work and an improvement in the economy. And some of the cyclicals are improving. So, you know, we've been fan of fans of cyclicals in general, adding that to your barbell. But names like, and I'll probably take some flack for this, but names like Uber, for example, look a lot like the airlines and the cruise lines. These are the stocks that haven't done anything since June 8th. And to me, those are much more timely and are starting to emerge. So I want to take some of that money out of the growth names on the bounce and add it to some of these cyclical names because I do think that the bigger trend, the longer term market cycle is still bullish for stocks through year end into 2021. Rob, always good to see you. Thanks for the charts. Appreciate it. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. Um, this sounds like a post-pandemic portfolio, Guy. We were just talking about this yesterday. What does your post-pandemic portfolio look like? Yeah. And it might be an Uber, and it might be cruise lines, and it might be all these cyclicals. Here we are. That's what Rob Slimer yeah. says to buy. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hear what Rob's saying. I mean, but I, I would I tend to buy this pullback in electronic arts for a number of different reasons, not least of which we've seen moves like this before. And I do think these stocks, including like the take twos of the world, are reasonable and in terms of, you know, I don't want to be all uh, dour here, but I don't know what post I don't know when post pandemic is. Nobody does, quite frankly. And if they tell you that they're lying from politics, uh, from politicians on down. So I just assume stay with things that have been working. And that includes electronic arts and take two. Steve, you, you've been positioned for this for post pandemic, whatever that looks like <laughs> for a while. Yeah, so you have to ask yourself, when, where is the next 30 to 50% going to come from? And it's not going to be the technology names. Those names have already hit the, uh, hit the jackpot. It's going to be the chemical names, the industrial names, the material names. That's where it's going to happen. So you could play the post-pandemic. For me, it's, it doesn't even matter if you recover as quick as you thought you were going to recover or not. It's where's the best value for your money right now, and it happens to be in value. So going to the value investor, Karen, uh, you're in names like, I mean, a lot of the technical, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, which Rob says could be in for a grind for some time. Why not go to traditional value? I mean, how do you justify the valuation of these names after such a run? Well, so I, I do have traditional value as mm -hmm. well. I have both. I, I like these. Um, I do think, yeah, they're a little rich for sure. But, I mean, I just have no faith in my ability to sell and know when to get back in. And then, you know, I've talked about paying taxes to, and, and having that still. Could I get out at the right time, in at the right time, and make enough of a spread to pay taxes? Or do I believe in the company in the long term? It's not going to trade at fair value all the time, sometimes rich, sometimes a little cheap. I'm hanging on for the long term, but I do have those other kind, those value kind. The one that has proved to be the most value, meaning it sucked, it hasn't worked, is the, is the financials. <laughs> so those are among the cheapest, and I clearly have exposure there. And I think if we do one day get to the other side, we will see those. Hopefully it will be before then, but I think that's an area of real value. Yeah. Tim? I can't believe Karen just cursed on national cable it's TV. It's not a curse. Not We're not going to get a fine or anything like anything. that. There's no bleeps. It's <laughs> fine. All right. So, so um, first of all, to to try to put my tech hat on, my sorry, my technicals hat on. I I, I kind of agree with a lot that Rob's saying. And you know what I said yesterday was, you know, go back to the end of June. 
collect 200 in PASCO or whatever that expression is and start again with a lot of these charts. Uh, and if you look at the triple Qs, that's somewhere around 245, which, which, you know, I'm not saying we have to go to tomorrow, but that is the pullback that takes you, you know, back to where a lot of this stuff has run off. I think the housing trade, uh, in, which has a lot of industrial to it, and, and some of that is materials and components, um, I think is alive and well. And, and, and copper above three bucks, even through all of this, is a very good sign for materials names. All right, coming up, more deal drama. LVMH calling off its $16 billion Tiffany takeover. But one of our traders says this deal isn't totally dead. Plus, we're following the after-hours action in shares of RH. The retailer surging on results of 13%. The company's conference call is now underway. We'll bring you all the big highlights from Fast Money Returns. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, but it's more like foe when it comes to LVMH and Tiffany. Robert Frank joins us now with the details of the story. Robert. Hey, Melissa, great to see you. Now, there is a reason Bernard Arnault is the fourth richest man in the world. LVMH saying a letter from the French government prevents them from moving forward on its pricey deal to acquire Tiffany. LVMH saying that September 1st letter from the French Foreign Ministry asked the company to delay the deal until January. Now, since that is after the original contract deadline, LVMH says it is not able to complete the transaction. Oh, well. Well, Tiffany responding with an immediate lawsuit in Delaware saying LVMH is trying to back out of its contractual obligations and that LVMH has unclean hands. Now, so what happens to Tiffany? Well, the pandemic has absolutely crushed the jewelry business, which is why LVMH wanted to renegotiate, the, renegotiate this deal for months. Tiffany's sales were down 45% in the second quarter. LVMH saying in a conference call today that it is not happy with the way Tiffany has been managed in the past few months. Tiffany saying the fundamental strength of our business is clear and that fourth quarter earnings will actually be up over 2019. Now, industry experts say the end run here could be that LVMH comes back to the table at a lower price or maybe that Delaware court could rule in favor of Tiffany, in which case they would have to acquire this company at the 135 per share. Melissa, back to you. So get, let me get this straight. The French foreign minister sent a letter which nobody has seen. Is that correct? Saying that well, you shouldn't do this deal LV until January. Yeah, so as you can imagine, lots of intrigue and conspiracy theories on how this letter came to be. This is a letter that LVMH has seen but has not given the French letter or a translation, full translation, to Tiffany. Tiffany's lawyers are asking for that. And clearly, if and when this goes to court, this will be Exhibit A. Sure. Uh, but lots of questions from reporters today on whether LVMH had a hand in generating this letter, what this letter actually says, and whether it, it requires them to stop the deal or it simply says, look, you should postpone it, right. in which case Tiffany says it didn't kill the deal. Hence maybe unclean hands. Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. Um, Karen, you'd think that this letter would be easy to find, easy to hand over, at least to <laughs> Tiffany. <laughs> Yeah, you would think. And actually, by the merger agreement, they, uh, LVMH must hand it over, and they haven't. So this is just clearly a case of buyer's remorse. And so let's go back to the merger agreement, because that's where Tiffany has all the power in this. 
And uh, you might remember Frank Aquila, who is Sullivan Cromwell, the A-team, and I mention him because he's a friend of the show. He was the lawyer, and they had a very tight merger agreement, meaning there's not a lot of reasons that LVMH can walk. And one of the things that is not a reason to be able to walk is changes or conditions affecting the industry which the companies operate in. Right? So that's really broad. That's a lot of protection for Tiffany. Also, if Tiffany fails to meet any published or internal projections or forecast, that doesn't matter either. That's not an out. And so LVMH, seeing no way out, decides we are going to drag our feet and we're not going to get antitrust approval. That is a condition. And so Tiffany was trying to get them, trying to get them to respond. And at one point, LVMH says, oh, you know, it's very difficult for us to file because we're highly decentralized and the documents are held with each of LVMH's maisons, which is ridiculous. Finally, they file EU and Tiffany again gets them, please respond, respond, respond. LVMH's lawyers say, maisons simply do not work on the weekends. Okay, so this is ridiculous. Then, miraculously, this letter shows up from the foreign ministry, which does not have jurisdiction here, and it's asking LVMH to delay the closing so that we can support France's intention to dissuade American authorities from, from sanctions and tariffs. I mean, I, I'm wondering if that letter, they don't give it over because it was printed on LVMH stationery because this is what they wanted the French minister to write. This is ridiculous. So, Tiffany has filed in Delaware court. They're seeking expedited proceedings. And we'll see next week whether uh, they get that. that. I think that'll be a minor positive. And we'll have a, a discovery, then a trial in October, and maybe a decision by the middle of November. All that having been said, I'm long. Tiffany has the way, way, way better <laughs> hand here. Maybe they get a skinnier deal. We still make money from here. Or maybe they pay the full price. I, I love the maisons are decentralized and simply do not work yeah. on the weekends. <laughs> I want to work in a, in a maison of LVMH. Um, <laughs> Guy, what do, you, what do you make of this? Uh, it, it's a lot of deal intrigue, certainly, but it does sound like Tiffany has, has got a lot on its side here. Well, a couple things. I don't speak French, so a lot of this went over my head, number one. Number two, that's the reason they call it risk arbitrage is because of that first word. And number three, Tiffany, at above everything else, and Karen can speak to this, is one of those iconic brands that almost by definition hurts, has a certain value. So I think this sell-off, if you go back to March, the levels we're trading at now is levels we've seen twice over the last six months. And I happen to think that, Tiffany, you buy with both hands because I agree with Karen, number one. And if it's not Louis Vuitton, I do think there's somebody else will swoop in at a certain point. So I think you buy Tiffany's on this dip. All right, we got a lot more headed your way here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A bombshell about AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine trials and a major question about who knew what and when, what it means in the race to find a cure. And later, there ain't no stopping Peloton. Why not one but two brokerages got even more bullish on the stock ahead of earnings? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following new developments around AstraZeneca's decision to put clinical trials of its coronavirus vaccine on hold. Meg Terrell joins us with the very latest. Hey, Meg. Hi, Melissa. And we are getting uh, new reports up through this afternoon on what's happening here. But overall, uh, the situation is the same as it was last night. The clinical trials are still on hold after a safety event in one of the trials in the UK. And we still don't know if that event was caused by the vaccine. But we have been getting some new details today, not from the company to the public, but from AstraZeneca's CEO, Pascal Sorio, to some investors who are on a call today organized by J.P. Morgan, uh, according to Stat News, which also broke the news last night, uh, he told investors that the case is a woman in the U.K. who had neurological symptoms consistent with a spinal disorder known as uh, transverse myelitis. Um, The participant was on the vaccine arm, not in the placebo arm of the trial, and her diagnosis has not been confirmed yet. That's all according to Stat. Now, AstraZeneca this afternoon uh, giving us a statement Uh, in response to our inquiries about that report and their decision uh, for the CEO to give this information um, to investors and not the public, uh, saying, quote, reports claiming to be based on comments made earlier today by our CEO stating that we have confirmed that a participant in our clinical trial suffered from transverse myelitis are incorrect. He stated that there is no final diagnosis and that there will not be one until more tests are carried out. And so, Melissa, it seems like sort of splitting hairs there. In fact, Stat News didn't report that he said definitely transverse myelitis, and they noted that it wasn't yet confirmed, not yet giving us a statement about how this information was disclosed or confirming the report that he said this person was in the vaccine arm. So still more questions here. And of course, we will have to wait for the key question about whether this is deemed related to the vaccine itself. Back over to you. Meg, here's another question. Is this typical that a drug maker like this would schedule investor calls and disseminate information to a smaller group of investors? I mean, it seems like I mean, and I guess the company is disputing uh, whether or not the reports are factual at all. But it seems like that could be a potential violation because, you know, disclosing what sort of, of sickness a patient may have incurred because of the COVID vaccine trial, even if it's not confirmed, seems like it could be material. Right. There's an argument over whether this information was material or not. What I understand is that, you know, this was a sort of pre-planned call as part of a CEO series uh, that J.P. Morgan analysts do with CEOs. So this was already on the books. And Mm. so Pascal Sorio participated in it and, and gave this information in response to questions. But you know, he gave information that the the company had not been giving in response to direct questions asking about those things. Uh, and we only found out about it because of Stat News' reporting citing three investors on that call. Um, the, the call was at about 10 a.m. this morning, and the stock had already recovered from that 8% drop yesterday. But there are a lot of questions being asked about that decision. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, 
who stays on top of the story for us. Joining us now for more on these developments and how they could affect AstraZeneca and the other uh, vaccine makers, Jeffrey's biotech analyst, Michael Yee. Michael, great to have you with us. I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about all of these disclosures of the, uh, you know, potentially the CEO telling a small group of investors this information. Um, the fact that the trial was also halted in July because a patient had other neurological symptoms, which ended up being multiple sclerosis. But we didn't know that the trial was halted at all back in July. How do you how do you parse this out? Well, I think uh, I think you're right. And I think what we're learning now is that this trial and all of the COVID-19 vaccine trials are going to be the most scrutinized, the most carefully watched uh, uh, programs across probably anything in biotech and biopharma we've ever seen because the stakes are so high. So I would say, number one, it's good to know that the safety oversight uh, is extremely high. I think that's good for all of us to know. Uh, and number two, I think that it's important to know that clearly some of these companies have patient safety uh, at the top of the list and that they're watching over this to protect all of us. So I think that's good news. Why do you think the stock recovered from a decline of 8% earlier in the session to, to finishing the day down 2%? Was it because yeah. of this disclosure um, that there was only one patient that had this illness and that's not yet been confirmed? Uh, I think it's two parts. I think one is probably dissemination and commentary by the company that they were not overly concerned about the situation and that the first case was not a transverse myelitis. But I also think number two is that the broader biopharma community, and that includes my discussions with investors and other scientists and other people in the industry, that we believe it's difficult to confirm that the vaccine would be related to this. It is a benefit risk question, meaning maybe he had it already, maybe not. But also, of course, the vaccine is going to be a positive for you if it works. So ultimately, I believe that in a clinical trial setting, this is probably going to be uh, uh, continued on. They're going to resume it. That's my prediction. We're going to hear about that. And these vaccines are going to work. And so I think that this is a speed bump on the road here. So, so Michael, uh, it's Steve Grasso. Quick question for you. So the average person who doesn't understand this space the way you do, are they better off trying to pick a handful of these stocks, buying the IBB, which has biotech and pharma in it, or just buying individual names and, and uh, being willing to take that risk of, of uh, 20% to the upside and possibly 30% to the downside. Seems crazy to me. In the long run, will all these companies have to share in the profits anyway, ultimately? Uh, you bring up, I think, a short-term and a long-term question. What I would tell investors is there are big pharma companies with a lot less beta, a lot less risk that do have ongoing phase three trials or earlier, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, J&J, &J, Pfizer, and I'll even tell you Merck has one of these that can be done in one injection, not two, and we'll see how that goes. And for those that want to play a trading view of it, look, Moderna has had a big pullback, BioNTech's had a pullback. I think we're going to hear from this data in the next month or two. I think it's going to read out positive. I think they go back up a bit. The longer term question will come back. And I think that's ultimately going to be the debate as to whether what does it matter if more are coming, the price is going to go down and we're going to go back to that debate. All right. Michael, always good to get your thoughts. Thank you. Michael Yee. Great to see you. Um, Tim Seymour, how do you how do you think about this space? How do you think about the, the disclosures and the company denial from AstraZeneca? 
Well, it, it sounds to me like disclosure is really the issue because the, the, it is customary to be pausing a trial and, and going through a series of steps to, to understand exactly what the safety issues are. And, and uh, as we've heard, and I thought Ken Fraser said this really well uh, on Scott's show, uh, the halftime report, you can't rush science. And, and ultimately, I, I, I get the sense that these big pharma companies are doing their jobs. Um, but the disclosure and how you get into, uh, you know, a, a Reg FD kind of a dynamic when you're on a, uh, a, a conference call with investors who keep pressing is a very challenging place, although for an experienced CEO to be able to handle. Uh, bottom line here is markets didn't act today as if this was news that was affecting their view of, you know, our post-pandemic uh, portfolio, uh, really. I mean, ultimately, um, I think we've come to to understand this process. And, and I you know, we've said this, Guy says this all the time, if you're expecting a, a vaccine in 2020 calendar year, I, I think you're, you're on the wrong side of that trade. But I think, you know, the other question, and this is what Grasso is getting to, is that eventually if there are all these uh, players with a vaccine in the pipeline, potentially everyone or many of them get to the finish line, Guy. Is it really going to offer them any sort of, I don't know, boost to revenues in the end? The PR obviously would be great. I don't think it. I don't think it's going to believe it or not. I don't think it's going to necessarily move the needle in terms of what it means to them on the bottom line. But maybe I'm wrong. I think this is clear to me, though. If 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 Novar, if AstraZeneca was working on a shingles vaccine, and this news had come out, nobody would have batted an eye. I think to the point is we are so hypersensitive now, and I think it's a cautionary tale for all these CEOs going forward to understand now their responsibility in this world and what they have to say and not say in terms of this uh, moving towards the vaccine. All right, coming up, Disney goes to battle as outrage grows over its new movie, Mulan. It will break down what it all means for the media empire. And later, we're counting down to earnings from two big names, what you can expect from Peloton and Oracle when they report results in less than 24 hours. Stick around much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is drama at Disney over its latest release of Mulan. Let's get back to Julia Borson, who's on that story also. Julia. Well, Melissa, Disney opens its big budget film Mulan in China on Friday after multiple delays and also amid calls on Twitter to boycott the film. Disney drawing criticism for in Mulan's closing credits, thanking Chinese government agencies for assistance in shooting the film, including two agencies accused of human rights violations in Xinjiang. That was one of many locations in which Disney shot in China, though much of the film was shot in New Zealand. Now, the State Department has estimated that over the past five years, as many as two million minority people in that region of China have been imprisoned in internment camps. The Chinese government has said the camps are part of an effort to improve the region's security. Now, this comes as Disney is hoping China will be a meaningful contributor to Mulan's box office. The film is based on a Chinese legend and stars a Chinese actress. She sparked controversy earlier this year after she tweeted support for China's Hong Kong crackdown. Now, the movie cost an estimated $200 million to make and much more to market. And there's a a lot riding on the Chinese movie-going market, which pre-COVID was projected to surpass that of the U.S. box office this year. We've reached out to Disney. No comment on this issue. Melissa? Just to be clear, Julia, who on Twitter is calling for the boycott? I mean, is it is it primarily uh, human rights it's, watchers in the United States or in Europe, or is, is, is it actually China? You know? Largely 
largely people in uh, different parts of Asia. We've seen calls mm. in Thailand and Taiwan and Hong Kong, of course, right. um, considering the conflict there uh, and predating it, especially with the star of the, of the film. Okay. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, Tim Seymour, is this going to be a headache for, for Disney, which got an upgrade, a glowing upgrade yesterday on its DTC, right, yeah. exactly, on the streaming product? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a headache for a squeaky, keen, squeaky clean mouse house that, that you don't expect this from. Um, and, and, but um, to be clear, I, I think Disney has walked a tightrope in the past and, and always ends up as Disney. Um, look, Asia is about 14 percent of, of their revenue base. Uh, U.S. is certainly still part of the story. What, what analysts are starting to do, and this is what Deutsche did, um, is they're, they're looking at, they call it a land grab in DTC, and they look where they are, but they look at the ability ultimately to be able to release uh, their, their Star Wars line uh, through premium video. Uh, PVOD is, is something that ultimately for Mulan is, is, is part of how they are evaluating the closed theaters in the United States. So um, to me, uh, the fact that Disney is changing a lot of the way they do things, including closing uh, certain networks and unprofitable business lines at a time when they do need to focus on efficiencies and balance sheet. Um, I, you know, I, I think the market's been um, at times overly hard on Disney and sometimes, you know, during periods where NASDAQ is selling off, they may forget about some of the issues that Disney has in front of them. Longer term, again, I talk about this all the time, four main business units that are, you know, even of them in and of themselves, um, very profitable and important to each other. It is amazing that it ended up in the credits. Special thanks to an agency that operates, you know, labor camps in Xinjiang, uh, Grasso. And you would think that for a company like Disney, there wouldn't be this blatant of a stumble. Yeah, I'm not sure how that wound up there. But whenever, whenever you try to pick a stock based on that, we tried to do that with Facebook and it didn't work out. So I'd be more concerned with the $26 billion that's coming out of parks for Disney. But the stock itself... The level of the hold is 130, and then, of course, the 200-day moving average at 123. I think Disney's okay here, uh, and especially as we move towards a vaccine, that $26 billion comes closer to, uh, to actually happening again and being able to be replicated. All right, coming up, we've got an earnings alert for you. Check out the move in RH, Restoration Hardware. We've got the trade on that straight ahead. And later, we're getting ready for earnings from Oracle. What options traders are seeing for the future of the tech giant? With much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on RH, Restoration Hardware. The stock is surging in the after-hour session up 14%. Let's get to Seema with the details. Seema. Melissa, one of the surprising beneficiaries of the pandemic is RH. Demand for home furnishings continues to rise. Everything from furniture to lights remains strong. Restoration Hardware says core demand up 47% in August and already up 44% in the first nine days of September. And while many brands have had to shrink their retail footprint as spending shifts to online, uh, CEO Gary Friedman says our physical stores are an integral part of our customer acquisition strategy and that when RH transforms one legacy store into a new design gallery, revenues on average double in one to three years. Now, the stock is up about 15% in after hours. It's up over 300% from its March low. Uh, while it's not in the XRT retail ETF, it is vastly outperforming big retailers that sell furniture. And Wells Fargo says this D- 
de-urbanization trend, Melissa, or people shifting from cities to suburbs and buying second homes puts RH in a competitive position. Plus, the company made a point last year, even before the pandemic, that it continues to shift a lot of its supply chain outside of China to other countries like Vietnam to, to avoid tariffs. And that certainly is paying off. RH CEO Gary Freeman on Mad Money tomorrow. Mel? All right, Seema, thank you, Seema Modi, with the RH details. Um, Tim Seymour, are you in? The, you have been in this name. Are you in it now? I have been. Now, you know what? I, I've not been in the trade for probably three months. I sold some of this bounce, and and if you think about uh, again those sales trends and where the 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 margins on a lot of their online sales have gone through the roof. It's been an extraordinary story. I think the housing trade continues to be extraordinary. Uh, if you look at the XHB, uh, I think the largest position in the XHB is Whirlpool, which is a name I recently got into. So I, I, I like this entire space. RH is not cheap. They sell a lot of outdoor furniture. They sell a lot of big furniture, too, Karen. So <laughs> people moving from apartments to houses can all of a sudden fit an RH couch in their living room. Right. Or more than one, yes. I mean, that, those, that, that revenue was great, but the margins, as Tim said, that was the really important part. Remember, though, big short interest. I mm. see, I, thought, I think it's at 28%. So that's part of the fueling this aftermarket hours as well, I would imagine. All right. Great quarter, though. Coming up, we are counting down to earnings from Oracle, why options traders are betting on a breakout when the number hits. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting with the CEO of Ulta Beauty. You can catch that full interview at the top of the hour. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got big earnings on our radar. Oracle reports tomorrow after the bell. That stock has largely underperformed the rest of the tech sector this year. But the options market is betting tomorrow's report could hold the key to brand new highs. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Hi, Melissa. So, yeah, Oracle traded more than two times uh, calls over puts today, although the volume was about average. That's not surprising given that they report after the close tomorrow. So we may see elevated volume tomorrow. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 5.6%. That's in line with the 5.3% that the company has averaged over the past eight quarters. But some options traders seem to be making more ambitious bets than that. Included in that are the October 60 calls. We saw those trading for about $1.30. And buyers of those calls are betting that the stock is going to be up at least 7.5% by October expiration. So that would represent a pretty good boost in the share price. And perhaps they were taking a look at two quarters ago when we saw a move of 20% to the upside after they reported. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. So the housing trade, obviously people know about Lowe's and Home Depot, but Whirlpool, the largest position, I think it's almost a 5% position in the XHB, is one of the, the essentially the building materials names that continues to outperform. You've had weakness, weakness you can buy with a valuation that actually you can own. Karen Feinerman. Yes, yeah, so this one isn't for everyone. It's for the, the risk arbitrageurs. If you're, if you're comfortable in your Maison, then I would say buy some Tiffany. <laughs> Yeah, Ashte Tiffany, nice. as they would say. Steve Grasso. <laughs> I'd like to give you stocks that could triple, quadruple, and sometimes be five times what they're worth today. Capri Holdings, CPRI is the symbol. If you look at what luxury brands are getting as, as far as a multiple, this one you're getting Jimmy Choo, uh, Versace, and Michael Kors for free where it's trading now. It should trade much, much higher. Guy Dami. 
I love Jimmy too. Just a, a cautionary tale. Their shoes are very <laughs> narrow. So for those of you out there with wide feet, I would avoid the Jimmy Choo. Not going to ask how you know that. But I would, <laughs> I would get into the Nikes, which continues to rally. NKE. Much more comfortable. Thanks for watching. Fast to see you back here tomorrow at 5. Madden Money starts right now. 